welcome everyone and happy Friday and let's just move right on into it. So we're going to be talking about criminogenic needs um, uh, today. So this is our third objective of the training. I'll be going over lots of interventions and, and treatment planning as well. So criminogenic needs are based on pretty much two principles, okay? Um, and uh, there's a, the, the need principle is definitely there, right? And we have two. We have those that are static and those that are dynamic. Now, I'm just, I'm sure you guys all know, but just to kind of give you, you know, an update <laughs> or a refresh, uh, the static ones are, are, don't change. They're historic. These are things that go in one direction, which is pretty much just to increase risk because it's already happened. It's history. Whether it was good or bad, it's already happened. It can't be changed, right? Um, they have many needs that are deserving of treatment, but not all of them needs, not all of those needs are associated with criminal behavior. So we want to really just kind of focus on some of those that are really what we call predictors of criminal behavior, which is are the which are the dynamic needs. These are the criminogenic needs. These that you see here listed. These that are current. They're adaptable. They can move in many ways, not just one way of increasing the risk. They can also go the other way of decreasing risk. Um, these risk factors are amenable to treatment, meaning we can touch them, we can process them, we can go through some things and really make some changes in their life and in, in, the, and in the direction that they're going. And then we also have the central eight predictors, which we've kind of already reviewed um, previously, but we're going to go into those a bit more um, this time around. Um, so you, you'll get a bit more influence on that. So we can't change the history, like I said that have contributed to the traumas, but we can prevent it from repeating itself and we can impart the knowledge and, and skills for our members so that they can create happiness. Uh, and that's what it really is, history versus the happiness. And we wanna treat the happiness, okay? The treating the static is key. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying it should be excluded, but you definitely wanna focus on the dynamic because these are the things that are adaptable. These are the things that are malleable. These are the things that actually can be manipulated and changed, okay? For example, um, we have a member that may have a need for employment, all right? And so the team is assisting them on employment. So once he got the job, a lot of aspects about him improved. His appearance improved, punctuality improved, uh, the depression seemed to decrease, his eating habits improved. He actually put on a little bit more weight because he can eat a little bit healthier or he can actually eat more um, for that matter. Me complying with the medication, staying sober. These were all good things that happened after this person got a job. I would think that we would all agree that these are definitely things that we want to um, that we want to be that that we would want to treat and that we would want for our members to succeed, um, and and they are. So the issue is what happens when something like a job is removed. Okay, something that has made these changes and brought about these influences in this person. What about what if what if that influence is removed? What happens then? Well, it did happen. So um, this person ended up losing their job. COVID hit. There were a lot of things. Uh, uh, we're all aware of how that how that works or how that happened. And so at that point, we really noticed. And I can, I'm not, not going to say at that point, but we knew prior to that that it was probably going to have. A, he was probably going to spiral downward. Why? Because we paid attention to what got him to where he was already. That job meant a lot. There was a lot of there was a lot of there was a lot of focus on that job for him. It resonated well for him. And every member is different, but having an having a job, being employed, making income was key for him, and it brought him a lot of other it brought him a lot of other benefits. So the one thing for us was like, okay, red flag. If he loses this gig, 
we got to really kick in and step in motion. So we want to have a plan B for him. That's what your team wants to do. That's what I talk about when I'm talking about prediction. Because in all honesty, <laughs> and I'll get to this too, we can't predict anything, okay? We have some things that can kind of lead us to some things. We can have things that may have some causation or some correlation. But to really say that this is definitely going to make this happen, no, you can't. But what I can say is that I can clearly recognize what this job means to him, what this job means for him. So I have to really recognize what's going to be on the opposite side of this job is loss. Okay. So team lost this job. We predicted that we kind of figured that out. Um, so we started to see some difficulty. Like I said, we started seeing the, the, the drinking again. Okay. He started thinking that he will start with the thinking, the cognitive part of it. He started thinking that he wasn't, he started doubting himself. He wasn't going to make money. He's scared. He, the fear is kicking in. All of this thing is, is what's in his head, right? I'm not going to be, I, I, I'll lose this role of me trying to get back with my kids. I won't be able to pay the restitution. All of these things are going through this member's head. So now the behavior comes in. I don't know what to do. I need a drink. Remember, remember, I said he hadn't had a drink. The member hadn't had a drink or had been sober for a while once he got this job too. So that was important. But now I'm spiraling downwards because I don't have this job, which was really meaningful to me. And so we had to point out all of these things. We had to point out the improvements. We had to weigh the pros and cons with this member so they could really see what this job, what this accomplishment, what this achievement really did for him in so many other levels. That's why I'm saying it's important to treat the dynamic because the dynamic can lead to a whole lot of other things. If I'm just treating the history, I'm only treating the trauma that he experienced back in prison. If I'm only treating the, you know, the, the bad grades that he got in school, if I'm only treating the jobs that he lost back in the past, that does nothing for the current or the present. I want to talk about what he can do. I want to talk about what we can change. So we wanted to encourage him to apply for other jobs, attend job fairs, let him know what he really was worth. And that this wasn't his fault. More importantly, normalize the situation. A lot of people lost their jobs in this particular situation, in COVID, and in this particular experience, I'll say that. A lot of people lost their jobs. Normalize that. Normalize that for them. We, we bring in the treatment. We bring in the therapy for them. If, if it includes, you know, maybe talking to family and friends, whatever collateral re, uh, resources that you guys have with them. Those are things that you guys want to do with. Because the central eight, those predictors include parenting and family relationships, education and employment, substance abuse or co-occurring disorders, leisure and recreation, peer relationships, emotional stability, criminal orientation and thinking, housing. All of those things fall under the central eight. So all of those things fall under the dynamic, which means all of those things are criminogenic needs that we need to focus on when we're working with our members. So in this table, just to go into a little bit, let's break them down a little bit. So anti-social personality pattern. I talked about this, you know, a little bit. It's not the same thing as APD. It's not the same thing as that. We want to build self-management. These are the treatment needs for these for this for this particular risk. And that's the risk goes back to the needs, right? So this is where we are right here. This is the treatment need that we have here. These are things that we see about this person, okay? So if they're if they're Exhibiting this antisocial personality pattern, they're probably exhibiting pro-criminal attitudes. They like to be, they like to be the criminal. Restless and aggressive or irritable types of behaviors or, or attitudes. Can't delay gratification. 
love to live a life of crime. You know, they'll tell you stories and it seems like they're getting a rush or a high about some of the things that they've done that are criminal. I call it the, the, the criminal euphoria. <laughs> it's like they just really get it's almost like trading war stories, if you will. So when you do it, when you're Im implementing treatment and you're addressing this particular risk, self-regulation, de delaying gratification act activities and strategies, willpower, self-management activities. These are the things that you want to do to be able to treat this risk team. These are the things that you're going to be looking at. In practical ways, what does that look like? Saving money, counting and storing calories, right? Prioritizing your needs and wants. People who live in shelter plus housing, where they stay in a shelter for a little while, they gain some skills. And after they stay in this shelter, this shelter helps them find a permanent housing or another apartment or something like that. Those are all practical things that we do, that your member does, that delays gratification. Those aren't things that happen instantly. Those are things they have to wait for, work for, right? Working up the corporate ladder, going from an intern to an employee. These are all practical things that happen that can work, that you work with your members with on delaying gratification. Those are ways you address those antisocial personality patterns. Because what you're really trying to address is those indicators, that impulsiveness, that adventurous, that pleasure seeking. We're trying to get that regulated. So when we're going into antisocial cognition, kind of the same thing, we're thinking about rationalizations for crime. This is your F the police. <laughs> this is your, well, the FDIC insures customers money, so robbing the bank doesn't hurt anybody. It's a victimless crime. I'm taking back what's mine. You know, there's just no regard, you know, being noisy, <laughs> playing their music late at night down the block, having law. These are all typical rationalizations. These are all just different attitudes towards the law. These are all practical things that happen when we're talking about antisocial cognition, not caring about the next person, not being considerate about others, people's needs, others, other people's faith, any of that, if that makes sense. Just no regard for the law. Okay. In this, in this, in this area, you want to address beliefs that support violence. You want to talk about problem solving. You want to counter those rational, rationalizations. Why do you say F the police? Why are we going to go rob a bank that can help that these that people need, that you need one day if you don't have a bank account already? Well, that's the way you're going to address some of those things. When you're practical, you got to do this in your treatment. Model this in treatment, helping behaviors. You're helping them get a job. You're helping them do things. That's pro-social right there. Bring that up to them. You know, shed some light on what you're doing. Have some empathy. Have some empathy. Impact antisocial thoughts on the community. See what that has for them. Their impact on the community. The impact their antisocial thoughts have on the community. What does that do for other people when you play your music loud? What does that do for other people when you're saying F the police and graffiti or you're or tagging or you're littering? Any of those things. It's just complete disregard. Antisocial peers, having those friends that just aren't going to do well. They aren't going to help you out. They like those criminal behaviors too because they were called bad too once upon a time. They're in the same situation that, that, that your members are probably in or have been. They may not have been locked up. They may have escaped got a scapegoat. They may have, you know, ducked and dodged and, you know, someone maybe didn't snitch, whatever, but it didn't change their circumstances. And it doesn't change the fact that your peers may want to still befriend them. Um, let me check in the chat. Uh, I can access. Okay. Oh, so everyone's good on the slides. 
I'm sorry, I'm just seeing that in the, in the chat here. Just want to be sure we're okay. Um, okay, so I'm sorry, uh, antisocial peers. So these are the, these are the friends you you want they they isolate sometimes and they don't hang out with pro social people because they don't get along and it, it's hard it's 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 hard for the you know for the Christian and the person that's using coke to, to always hang out and agree on certain things you know what I mean so you guys kind of, it has to be some like minds and you want them to have pro social like minds in their presence you know we want we want to keep them away from the criminal behaviors or the criminals if you will and sometimes that's hard sometimes it's about where they live sometimes these criminals are their family members you just never know we want to address poor feelings of self-esteem we want to address self-worth in this area we want to address any anxiety or depression because these are the things that lead you to your criminal friends these are the things that make you feel like you have to belong someplace else this is where the gang starts this is where the affiliations start because these peers do are they're doing things like me they're benefiting maybe they're making money in the streets Maybe they got all the, all the cool girls, all the cool guys are with them. They're the hype of the party. All of that stuff. Those are the rewards. Remember, we talked about that the other day, the social learning. What if they learn from hanging out with these friends? What were the benefits of that? And, and being you want to encourage them to, 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 hang, to hang out in just better areas or attend better events that don't have criminal aspects to them. Replace their friends. Reduce the substance use. Get away from the drugs and the alcohol. Okay, parenting skills may need to come into play here just as well, because you got some parents that are hanging out with the wrong people and they're bringing their kids around the wrong people just as well, and that could get them in a whole mess of trouble. Boundaries, setting boundaries or limits, key here, key here. You'll be so surprised how many people are influenced. That peer pressure it goes all the way into adulthood. If there's co-occurring disorders, of course, the, the indicator is they're using, right? That's a no-brainer. So with this, we want to treat the substance abuse or the co-occurring disorders, okay? So we're talking about co-ed. We're talking about MAT, seeking safety, 12-step programs, relapse prevention. Those are some of the things. Get, getting a substance abuse uh, specialist, it, it really does help if you have that on your team or a part of your program. Some practical ways. Have them go to sober parties and sober events. A lot of the 12-step um, programs do offer those, do provide those so that people can have an aspect. When I worked at the program at Telecare, we would have Super Bowl parties. So we would come in and there would be sober Super Bowl parties. We would come in about three o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, however long Super Bowl starts, order pizza, snacks, all of that. And members could come there. We would pick them up and bring them back home so they can enjoy the Super Bowl in a sober environment because most Super Bowl parties are not sober parties, right? That's usually the fun of the Super Bowl party. But we wanted them to provide them with an environment that was key. So you might want to do something like this in your program. You may want to be able to provide those activities and those events that they can thrive in because they are, they're rare. They're not always out there. You have to create these events. You have to create these spaces. So um, getting connecting them with a sponsor, if they're into prayer, meditation, spirituality, that works well with co-occurring disorders too. Okay, we want to enhance alternatives for them using these substances. That's the name of the game right here. When we're talking about family or marital relationships, this can look like, um, you know, lots of fighting, arguing, domestic violence, um, inappropriate disciplining, borderline child abuse, if not child abuse, things of that sort, poor family ties, burning, burned bridges or burning bridges, if that's actively happening. These are the things that your members are going to be reporting to you when they're coming to treatment. So you want to improve the family dynamics, okay? You want to get them into family therapy. If you have collateral, if you have a consent to talk to this other person that's in their life, their spouse, their children, their mom, whoever, that's key. 
That's key. You know what I mean? So you want to get both sides of the situation, if you will. So sometimes that's very helpful if you do, if you do have that. Some members don't want you to have that information about them. And that's okay. You know, you do what you can. But some practical things is having family events, just positive family time, celebrations, holidays, quality time together. That can definitely remedy some of that work in addition to the family therapy. So something to kind of think about with that. But sometimes it can be a little bit tricky, depends on how much access they want to give you to your to their family um school and work you know kind of just talked about this in the last example you know if they're starting to fail in school or you know they're getting written up at work or sent home or getting in trouble we want to really really be able to focus on that and nurture that okay we want to really focus on their strengths and their ability their vocation skills doing those types of assessments with them having them go to vocational groups to help them out with those types of things, empowering them and letting them know that they can get a job and they can maintain a job. These are things that they need to hear because maybe they haven't had a job before. Okay. So we're going to help them with job searching. We're going to help them with applications. We're going to nurture interpersonal relationships because they got to be able to get along with their colleagues at work. We all have colleagues that we might not like, or we don't get along with, and that's normal. Normalize that for them normalize that for them but also normalize that we need to come here every day because that's not why we're here we're not here to make friends we're here to make we're here to do a job we're here to make money and you want to be able to get them in that in that space in that headspace and it's about changing that cognition it's about changing that thought process give them another reason to go to work and sometimes they can get focused on the negative and that'll lead them in a completely different direction uh leisure and activities uh Get, get connected and just some more fun stuff that's pro-social. Um, encourage pro-social activities. They can join um, Gold Star is, it, is a actual a resource online and you can subscribe to it and they send nice community events. You can filter what kind of events if you want it for kids, if you want, you know, music. Um, but Gold Star events is good for that. The LA, um, the calendar section in the LA Times, LA Weekly, those are good as well at finding really good events. Um, your own resources, you know, different museums, um, thing, the 211 is another good resource for um, things in, in the community and things that are going on to support your members too. But you want to get them into the community. You can, you can do this uh, art therapy. Any of you guys into art therapy or have an art therapist, here you go. This is a great, great, great treatment for that. You assess and explore their preferences. Make sure you're doing what they want to do, not what you want them to do. You know what I mean? Um, we've had members go fishing. We've had members um, do, do things at the park. We've had member parties. Um, so you can be creative with your sessions. Um, make sure it's, it's treatment focused. Make sure you're not just hanging out at the park. Make sure you're not, you know what I mean? Like really bring in the point of where, where, where you are. Really bring in the environment and the impact that it's having on your treatment and their progress. That's the goal. Because you can't write a note saying we just hung out at the park. <laughs> that's, not, that's not treatment. So just be mindful. Set appropriate boundaries too. Be careful going to the beach, ladies, uh, case managers. If, if it's a male, you don't want it to ever look like a date. Um, so I, I will caution you with that, that boundaries are key with that. Let me check the chats. Everyone looking good? All right. Everyone seems well. So this is talking about some non-criminogenic needs. These things need attention too, okay? If number one is up there is major mental illness, that's not a criminogenic need, believe it or not. It's not a criminogenic need, but we do need to treat it. We do need to, we do need to, we do need to address it because it's something that can lead somebody to um, law enforcement or it can lead them into a hospital. 
So we still want to address it. If they're having hallucinations, delusions, lots of symptoms that they're reporting, these are the things that you want to be looking for. Our goal is to decrease, just decrease, is decrease those symptoms, manage those symptoms. Okay. So when we're talking about that, we, we want to focus on self-esteem too, as well here. That's a, that's a, that's another area that we can think about. We want to focus on self-esteem as well with as when close to their major mental illness, because there are a lot of times they're facing stigmas. They're having doubts about themselves, particularly if it's, if it's depression. Um, so you want to encourage some other things in there, individual and group therapy work, highlighting their strengths and abilities works, trauma-informed care, key. If you, if your team isn't trained on, that's a whole nother training. If your team isn't, if you're, Dream isn't trained. If your team isn't trained on trauma-informed care, that was a lot. Um, that that's gonna hurt you. Get them there. Get them there. Get them there. Get them there. Get you there. If you're if it's you that I'm talking to, um, and being practical, you know, you 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 talk about their values. You talk about their strengths. You talk about their rewards. You give them compliments on good things, not necessarily oh your hair looks pretty today or that's a nice dress. I mean, those work, those are cool, particularly if this is somebody that has a problem keeping their hair together or dressing appropriately. Yes, that's a that's a good compliment to give, but give them compliments of quality. Give them compliments gonna relate to their treatment. You seem well, like you're in a good mood today. What is different? Let's talk about that. Your medication seems to be working. You are a lot, we are a lot more pleasant today. You know, you, if their appearance has been a problem or if they're being malodorous or anything like that, yeah, you want to point those things out too, but really encourage and empower them. Self-affirmations. I tell members all the time, get some post-its, write some really good things about yourself and post them around the house so that in every, every time you walk into a room, there's a message for you. There's a message for you. Let them write their own messages because I can't tell you what's going to make you feel good and I can't tell you what's going to affirm you, okay? But work with them on that. That's something that you can do practically with them. And when we're talking about the major mental disorder, of course, we're, we're, I don't want to exclude the, the key, key parts of it, psychiatric visits, making sure they're on their medications, psychoeducational groups, so they have insight into their mental illness. Does that make sense, team? And again, the CBT trauma-informed care. Um, and, when, and in the practical sense, if they're taking their medications, you want to compliment them on that. If they're using their coping skills, you want to compliment on that. If they're doing reality testing, when they're having those delusions, you want to compliment them on that because that's major. That's a whole nother training on hallucinations versus delusions and how you want to treat them too, because it's different. It's very different. Delusions can't be treated with meds. So it's a lot of creativity going on there with your team. So be sure you guys know how to treat delusions specifically. A lot of them come out with fixed beliefs, y'all. That's what a delusion is. So <clears throat> just be sure that, you know, you're, you're helping them gain the insight, connecting them. NAMI, NAMI is a good resource for them. That's another practical approach that they can implement. When I'm saying practical, I'm thinking about things that they'll be able to do without you, things that they'll be able to do independently, things that they can sustain, because at the end of the day, they're going to leave your program and you want them to be well. Okay, when it comes to physical health, that's another thing. A lot of our members come out with high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity, just, you know, just so much damage to their body from maybe drugs or alcohol. So the goal for that is we want to decrease these health problems. We're going to get a hold of them at least. Okay. Make sure they're, co they're collaborating with their PCP. Make sure that they're doing their, um, they're going on their visits. They're taking their medications. If you have an FQHC federally qualified health center on, on your site, 
perfect. We were able to have that. And I can cannot tell you how beneficial that truly is to have a, a clinic just there on site that you can treat your members for some of their immediate, you know, medical needs. It's been an emergency or something like that. Of course, they're going to need to go to the emergency room. Of course, we refer out to specialists, but to get some of the, the basics done, it's been incredibly helpful. So if you have that, that's great. If not, get connected with the hair, with the healthcare clinic out there near you. Um, get, get connected, get connected. Um, housing, this is key. I can't, I can't talk enough about the, the importance of housing and treating, um, treating housing or poverty, if you will. Um, the homelessness, um, you, that, that's all, that's, that's, clear indicator or they're living in substandard, you know, subhuman conditions, either or uh, couch surfing. That's another one. We don't want people couch surfing too much, too much. Okay. Um, the goal is to live in an affordable and decent housing. So we got to help them with that. We got to help them with housing applications. We got to help them look for housing that they can thrive in. So we talked about the neighborhood disorder. So we want to think about that. What kind of uh, area are they moving to? Is the gang involvement um, or, or gang affiliation a concern? Things of that sort. We want to get them housed, okay? So I'm going to move into a little bit on just specifically fo focusing on antisocial personality patterns, okay? So just some specific interventions. Assertiveness training is, is key. Assertiveness training is key as most conflicts begin because somebody feels like their rights are being violated. This is where you hear, I'm not gonna be disrespected. You're not gonna just take advantage of me. And the response is usually aggressive, okay? We wanna empower the member to learn a new skill and have a different frame of mind about it though. We wanna reduce the conflicts and the aggressive incidents overall. People are gonna step on your toes. People are going to piss you off. We wanna normalize those events and experiences because they're gonna happen. They happen to us. We can't control the behaviors of others, but we can control our own behavior and our own responses. And so these are the interventions we wanna use when these types of situations come up with our members. If you have an anger management program, there are plenty out there, get them to it. Get, implement that in your program, okay? Conflict resolution is great. That's a complete, that's another intervention. Nonviolent communication. That's also, that's also a great intervention, making sure that they truly understand um, how to respond and how to assert themselves without being violent or aggressive or without having someone else perceive them as such. Remember, body language is 70% of your communications. So if I have my posturing or if I'm looking menacing or threatening, that's enough, you know, to get somebody else to respond differently, to get law enforcement involved, to get someone else fearful, any of those things, their own personal medicine, let them create that. We don't know what that is. Okay. So <clears throat> we want to be sure that they are planning their own treatment and that we are simply collaborating with them. Okay. Um, conflict resolution model. I just want to kind of touch on this. And this is a specific an intervention that you can utilize when you're addressing some of these antisocial personality patterns, not antisocial personality disorder, again, specifically the patterns. We want to identify the problem. So let's say the problem, let's go back to the employment situation. Let's say the supervisor is cutting hours, but they're only cutting hours for our member. Everybody else's shift is moving okay. There's no issues. Everybody else is getting 40 hours a week. Our member is only getting about 25 to 30. They used to get 40. So they're coming to you and you want to identify what feelings, how is this making them feel? What are they going through? What I hear a lot, disrespected, discriminated, singled out, they're angry. 
And I think any of us would be angry too, especially if there's no why behind it. There's no rationale into why my hours are being cut. It just looks like I'm being slighted. So you talk to them about those feelings. You talk to them about those angers. You talk to them about the disrespect. And you really want to get them to understand that that hurts. It hurts to be disrespected. It hurts to be singled out. And if we can get them to get to that point, now we're cooking with gas. Now we're working. Now we're processing stuff right here. This is where the therapy and the treatment is coming in. We want to identify the impact, okay? So if you are being if you're being disrespected and singled out and discriminated, how does that affect you? What is the impact of that? Less money because my hours are cut. Boredom now because I have more time on my hands. Too much idle time maybe. Now I might be discouraged from working because I'm feeling like I'm losing and I don't really know why I'm losing. We want to identify the impact that this has on the members so you guys can process that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to skip. Um, we want to decide if, if we do or don't want to resolve this. Is it worth it? Some conflicts are worth, aren't even worth it. Some conflicts are just like, brush that off. Go on. Who cares? It's not worth it. But a job, maybe, maybe not, especially not the job to the, the member that I described earlier, who really valued being employed, who really valued their position, who, who was benefiting from that. So we got to decide if we do or we don't resolve, and we're going to work towards a resolution. This is the real work for the case manager. What are you supposed to be doing? How would you like the problem to be resolved? Is there a compromise needed? Are we going to role play some scenarios or dealing with the brush driver or dealing with the supervisor or dealing with the coworker? Give them homework assignments and then schedule the follow-up with them at the end of the sessions to see if they were able to do that towards working towards the resolution. This is just one intervention that can work, team. Give them some power. Empower them. Empower them to walk away from situations. Empower members to behave in ways to reduce impact and prevent any adverse consequences, safety or incarceration or hospitalization. We want to assist them with finding their power that works for them. Okay? These are different things you can tell your member. These are different just examples. Learn three ways to communicate verbally when you're angry so you're not yelling and cursing and banging on tables and vandalizing things, damaging things, property damage, any of that. Getting fired off the bat just because you just acted out, you know, and people were, uh, were unsafe. Accepting responsibility. Accountability is so key. Accountability is key. So some other interventions you can use with antisocial personality parent patterns, peer advocacy training, that because they're helping someone else, volunteering, helping someone else, using their own personal medicine, common ground. I know some of you guys use um, common ground as a complete another program um, that has a lot of different interventions and activities and things involved. I'm quite sure many of you are familiar. Works here too, team. Peer support programs. Um, you want to program structure is key. Right. So when I'm saying program structure, not just the structure of your program, their own program there, they need structure, because remember, when they were locked up, they had nothing but structure, nothing but structure in there, they may still be used to that a lot of them still they very well need that. Okay, so we want to make sure that their day or their days are structured that 40 to 70% of their time is structured not left to be idle. So they can attend peer support groups. They can go to church or, or um, you, you know, religious groups or events or concerts or things of that sort. Meditation, yoga is helpful. Making healthy choices and decision-making. That's something you can sit down with your member, do weighing pros and cons. 
those pro-social recreational activities, being a peer mentor, having them help facilitate some of your groups. We want to model that appropriate behavior just as well, okay? When we're talking about antisocial cognition, we're talking about rephrasing, reprocessing, rethinking a lot of these things. That's what we're talking about, okay? So this is the asset versus deficit thinking. I'll get into that a little bit, bit more down the road. But um, personal identity activities, common ground again works here. Individual therapy, stinking thinking activities. You can borrow a lot from your substance abuse counselors when it comes to the stinking thinking stuff here. We want to get them to change their minds in a different way. Seeking safety, skill building, problem solving, all of these things. Medication management. These are all great interventions to change their way of thinking. Problem solving, I can't help that one right there is always going to be a gem. So with that, we're talking about antisocial peers, same thing. Uh, seeking safety is really, really good as it deals with uh, substance abuse or co-occurring disorders rather and trauma at the same time. Um, setting boundaries or limits is one of the major, major uh, highlights of the, of the program, I would say too. So it's really, really good to, to utilize seeking safety. They have really good coping skills and check-in processes uh, that work really well with seeking safety. Healthy and toxic relationships, talk about those. Um, often I heard a lot of times that a lot of the women get with boyfriends or male companionships that don't mean them well. Um, this is where you want to bring that up because those are antisocial peers too. If he's, if he's asking you to go out there and, and sell your body, he shouldn't be your friend. He shouldn't be in your life. Like we want to break away from that. Okay. Making better social connections. Again, the spirituality and religion also works here and prayer, all of that works there. Don't, don't discount don't discount prayer and spirituality. Um, lots of lots of work come with that. Even if it's not your thing, that's fine. This is not your treatment. That's the beauty of it. This isn't about you. So make sure you connect them to someone that can really, really enhance that. Um, make sure we're not imparting anything on them that doesn't already belong to them too, if that makes sense. Um, we want to sever those old ties with people that just don't mean us any well and really set those boundaries. So when it comes to the relationships, we risk. There's the risk of reincarceration. There's the need to be, you know, pro-social and positive. Your case manager should psychoeducate your member on healthy boundaries to develop healthy relationships with their family and peers. Your case manager encourage or engage your member in role plays for developing healthy boundaries within a support system. Okay, we want them to set boundaries with others and put freedom first. Put your freedom first, not that relationship, because if that relationship is coming before your freedom, that's a problem. And they're probably not a good relationship to be in if they want to come before your freedom. I don't want anybody that wants me to be their friend more than I want to be free to be their friend. So you want to work on their thought process. If being asked to do something illegal, is it your friend? What are the consequences? What keeps you from saying no? How much pressure is there? Because that's what we may need to address. There may be more pressure than we know about. Empower them. This is where their member power comes in. We're talking about antisocial peers. I will be assertive with them. I'm going to refuse to decline and, de decline and engage in any illegal activity. This is where your case manager, your case manager should be psychoeducating your member on healthy boundaries again. Saying no to protect myself. So when we're talking about moving into co-occurring disorders, there are lots of other interventions. Again, a lot of these still ones still work. That's the beauty of it. They're flexible. 
They work in all of these domains. You just have to tailor it specifically. That's where the real work comes in as the case managers or the program managers. So again, with co-occurring disorders, I, like I mentioned, seeking safety work, your spirituality, that's very, very key. Uh, a lot of 12-step programs occur, incorporate spirituality quite a bit. For those that aren't into spirituality, I definitely have some other alternatives that I'll review too. 12-step's um, not really my thing, but it's okay because it's really out there and popular and a lot of other people like it. So if they like it, I love it. 90% um, <clears throat> of our members came with uh, co-occurring disorders, okay? So you definitely wanna be sure that this is a major, major focus of the treatment. Your staff need to be knowledgeable about co-occurring disorders and treatment. Again, like I said, if you have a substance abuse specialist on staff, on site, beautiful. Lived experience is everything. So a lot of substance abuse counselors come from the background of being addicted or having a co-occurring disorder themselves. So that's helpful for them. That's helpful in engaging. Your members will want to talk to them more than want to talk to somebody who hasn't been quote unquote an addict before. Okay. So we want it, we don't want to risk the risk here is relapse. The need here is to combat those triggers. The responsivity here is either seeking safety, coag, relax prevention groups, whatever, 12-step groups, all of that. The goal is to be free of drug and alcohol use and abuse. That's the goal, okay? As a program, you guys can facilitate recovery groups. You guys can facilitate individual, um, individual therapy about it or individual sessions with the substance abuse counselor, all of that. Because you really wanna encourage your member to have some power, learning, learning some triggers, learning at least five avoiding certain people that may be family again like i mentioned they may not be able to go to thanksgiving this year or christmas because they need they need to work on themselves and thanksgiving and christmas is going to be heavily heavily weighted with booze because that's what people do for holidays right it happens attending a treatment independently taking the initiative to go to a treatment meeting an aa a ca or any other type of meeting that's going to help them Oh, I mentioned these already. Uh, substance abuse counselor, trauma and forward care. Stages of change. That's another one. Motivational interviewing, guys. These are all great for substance abuse, co-occurring disorders. That's what we want to do is reduce the substance use. Being an ambassador of a program, a model member, this helps because now they have a position. Now they may be helping lead groups and helping a peer. Matt. That's another one. Um, you guys can actually really connect with the parole department. They actually do have some MAP programs there. I'm not certain if you guys have MAP programs or implementing that. If not, get on board for sure. Um, it's helpful. Some members are okay with it. Some members don't like, you know, the medication and, you know, taking other medications and things of that sort, but it's, it helps. It definitely does help um, help some. So, it, and, and not all. It doesn't work for all um, uses. That's a whole another training within itself. I'm not going to get too detailed into that, but it can help for some of those that are, you know, um, using certain substances. Harm reduction, of course. If uh, if you can use, uh, if you can smoke crack on the weekends versus Monday through Friday, I'm happy. I'm very excited if you can run, get it down from two to seven. You know, get it from. Two from seven, that's what I'm trying to say. Making healthy choices. If they can identify their triggers, these are things that are giving them insight into their own co-occurring disorder. Once they have insight, they have control. They have control, you know? Um, you can also use the parole department because they have what's called the STAR treatment program at the parole office. You can get them into that. But, but you, you just wanna be sure that you're providing the right 
type of treatment. That's what I ought to say. Give them what they need because there's so many different options out there. I've listed a lot and, and that's on purpose because there's not just one fit and you got to figure out which one goes, which one connects with your member the most. You have options team. You have lots and lots of options out there. Okay. And I just want to say again, peer pressure doesn't go away because you grow out of, you know, being a teenager or adolescence. It stays there. You know, and you want to, and you also want to um, hone in on them possibly peer pressuring other people. That's selfish. It's selfish to have someone relapse with you for your own indulgences. Okay, bring that up to them. Bring up how they're impacting others too. So a lot of them, again, like I said, they come with family trauma, lost family while incarcerated, have you know burned bridges. You want to look at some of these other things so they can rebuild some of these bridges. Family counseling and family reunification is a great tool. Okay. It is a great tool. They, a sense of belonging, having that support is really, really key. If they have that, it's supposed to say marital, not marital. I do. I just <laughs> noticed that. So marital relationships is what that should read. Um, but if they're supportive and they're appropriate, get them involved, you know, um, have the member get them involved in the treatment. Um, it, it, it's so helpful. It really, really is helpful. So family therapy, conflict resolution works here. Parenting skills, if there are parenting classes or if you guys hold parenting classes, that's great. That's helpful, particularly with those that are trying to get back with their kids. You know, it may be required for some, depending if they, you know, have abuse cases on them. They very well may. Um, you want to teach about fighting fair. You know what I mean? Let's not get to name calling. Let's not dig deep. You know, that's the one thing about relationships is that they know your vulnerabilities. You know what I mean? They know what presses your buttons, your significant others. They, they, they know these things. Your spouses, they know, they know your triggers. They know what's going to set you. And that's not fair to use that. Okay. That's not fair to bring that up. So teaching them how to fight fear, focusing on whatever the issue or the topic is. Arguments will happen. Disagreements will happen. That's okay. Normalize that. That's human. That's part of human behaviors, part of human relationships, all of it. So sometimes you may want to do the empty chair technique where they're talking, the is gestalt therapy, where they're talking to someone that's not really there, but it's helping them get those things out. Just never know where the trauma is coming from. You may need to collaborate with a PCP if medical issues are, are a problem. Some of our members are caregivers. When it comes to school and work, this is key. Lack of finance is a contributing factor to previous criminal, criminal acts. I can't stress that enough. Money or, the, or, or feeling like I need to survive is what you will hear most often. That's what gets people sent back often. More often than not, money, needing it. So programs, when, you, when your members are coming, immediately start to focus on how to get them employed or how to get them some financial assistance, whether it's GR, SSI, SSDI, food stamps, housing subsidies, whatever. Get them something that's kind of going to get them some sort of income, some sort of value of income there so that they're not out there robbing, stealing, or doing other things to get money, fraud, prostitution, selling drugs, any of those things. Because like I said in the last one, I mean, they, they, they can get smart and think, well, if I spend about five hours in the streets, I can make this versus applying for SSI or trying to get this job or whatever the other options could be. Get them into literacy programs. Some may not be able to read. Some may not be able to write. Get them into those programs and they may be too embarrassed to tell you or talk to you about that. 
The Department of Rehabilitation is really, really good at meeting and assessing our members' needs and connecting them with employment and vocational opportunities to get them um, get them going on a career path, actually. I've seen people become truck drivers, longshoremen, culinary, chefs, all of it. So DOR is key. They help people get uniforms. They help people get um, tools and things that they need if they're going to be a mechanic. I had somebody get knives. And if you know anything about, you know, culinary, those things are expensive, but, you know, your, your tools, your, your utensils, those things are pretty, pretty expensive. Proper shoes to uh, be standing on your feet all day. Like those things, laptops, they'll, they'll help you with that. I had someone get a camera because they were into photography. So use the Department of Rehabilitation. They can help guys. Um, One-stop employment centers, take them there. Take them there. They can do their resume writing. They can do job searching, all that kind of stuff, getting their things together. Um, so an employment specialist is also helpful if you have somebody like that on your team. If not, your case manager, you, you're an employment specialist and get your get your um, supports together and establish some relationships in the community for real with that, because that can really get you somewhere. A lot of times our members can become house managers and in the in the residences that they're living. A lot of times that you're getting into an Uber or Lyft, please believe those are probably members. I got a lot of members that drive Uber, a lot of members that drive Lyft. So I do say always check your driver as soon as your ride is accepted. Make sure you see the picture because that's the one thing you don't want is a member coming to your house to pick you up or picking you up from a bar or taking you to your house or wherever. So be mindful of that. But Uber and Lyft are great resources provided your member can handle, you know, um, driving, you know, the distances, you know, physically and all of that. They actually have a car and all that kind of stuff. It's really good for them. I have a lot of people that have been successful with Uber. Um, PAC meetings. PAC meetings are held by the parole department. And they're, I want to say, every month or every other month. I could be mistaken on that. Check with your parole department. Um, and, be, and they're really good because they're full of resources um, for your members. Uh, resources as far as jobs, schools, all of those kinds of things. You yourself should actually talk about your program if you're able to take in, you know, um, members there, if you're trying to increase enrollment and things of that sort. That's a great way to highlight your program. It's a great way to establish partners in the community. It's a great way to really get in close with um, CDCR and, and collaborating with them, okay? So that's another option for um, school and work. Um, labor programs, lots of them are out there too. ARC is one. Um, there's a lot that are into construction and mechanics. I, I can't think of too many more off the top of my head, but several, several programs. Do some research in there. 211 is also a good resource for that, for finding other stuff in the community like that. So again, with leisure activities, we want to be sure that they're, you know, uh, just basically hanging out in the right places, getting them connected to people, getting them connected to really positive activities in the community. And we, and again, there are some of the other, um, other interventions that you can still use. Um, these go hand in hand with your antisocial peers um, interventions, because typically if you're going out and hanging out, you're going out and hanging out with other people. You're not always in isolation. So a lot of these things go hand in hand. And so which you have the major mental illness when we're getting to the non-criminogenic needs, this is a no-brainer. Medicine, individual therapy, trauma-informed care, psychiatric support, we know these. Um, anger management groups. Um, I am not my diagnosis. This was the name of a group that we had um, for um, psychoeducation um, and empowering members with their and getting insight. That was the purpose of the group. So uh, that's kind of key. I'll touch on that when we get to group therapy, but that is, that's, that's kind of key in uh, how you title your groups. Um, healthy boundaries are always key for, for a mental illness. And when we're talking about physical health, tobacco cessation, whole person care, 
that's everything right now. That's the movement. So please be sure you are helping treating your member from head to toe. Okay. That is a key, key thing right now, because as you can see, physical health can lead to a lot of other things. We want to be sure they're staying on their medication and then if they get nursing support, some programs do have a nurse on staff. If you do, that is awesome. You want that. You want your nurse to do their assessments. Nurses can do risk assessments as well. So you want them to be able to do that as um, too. You want them to be able to help them with their peel boxes. Maybe they need help counting them out, putting them on the right days, that type of thing. Your nurse also has a scope of practice to figure out, hey, you're not looking too right. Um, I think he's retaining water. Um, eyes are, are, are yellowed. Skin is kind of jaundiced. Things of that nature that they're qualified to identify, observe, and report is also so helpful because you can you can save a life. You can totally save a life with the nurse. Um, so some interventions for housing, meet the members where they are first and foremost. Um, if they're actively using, please don't put them in a sober living home just because it's a bed available. Please don't do that. They may need more structure and you don't want to jeopardize the sobriety of other people, okay? Find housing, buy four, 420 friendly housing, okay? A lot of our members smoke weed. We live in California and it's okay to do that. So there's another challenge that we have, y'all. We, we fighting alcohol, which is legal. We're fighting marijuana, which is legal. We're fighting um, nicotine, which is legal. We're fighting all of these things, okay, with our members. So if your member smokes weed, and I'm gonna tell you right here, your pro, the pro, not they're not gonna care about weed. Most of them don't even test for marijuana because most of them feel like, hey, if he's smoking weed, he's probably chill. He's probably relaxed. And there's some truth to that, but it definitely doesn't work well with their other medications. So that's where the tricky part gets in. Um, at least buying it, if at a dispensary, they're not going to go to jail for buying it. They can't sell it, of course, but if they're going to smoke weed, find a house that allows that they're out there. I had a lot of vendors and I was one of them. They would kind of look at me like, uh, well, yeah, we do. We didn't know if we should say that. I'm like, no, we need to keep it real. We need to understand what's going on. I don't want my member to get kicked out of housing because he smokes weed. And if there's a 420 housing place that he can go. I'd rather do that. We got to kind of weigh the pros and cons. Housing comes first, but I don't want to place him in a housing smoking weed with people who aren't smoking weed at all. So think about that. Money management, getting their credit scores up, all this stuff goes with housing because these are all things that matter when they're looking for independent housing. ADLs, make sure that they can wash their clothes, they can cook, that type of stuff. These are things we may want to work with them on. This is where your, your case management pieces come in and having a housing specialist to get out there and really finding some good vendors. Some people use master leasing. We tried it once, didn't work. Ah, I don't like master. Master leasing is great because you have a guarantee usually of your bid. So you can place people in there often. The other thing about that is that you run the risk of paying for an empty bid. Um, I don't like that part. So master leasing can be a little, a little tricky. Um, yeah, so I would, I would, yeah, I, I play with that a little bit, if you will. I personally didn't care for it, but it can work if, if for guaranteed bid. So there's some challenges and some limitations, okay? Not perfect predictions. I don't even like the word predictions, but according to the research, the science, nothing's perfect. There's no, you, you can't really predict anything. We, we do the best we can with um, some of the behaviors that can lead to some of these things, but then we get into the whole causation versus correlation type of thing, okay? And it's usually a lot of a correlation more so than a causation. Um, there's no guarantee they'll never reoffend. Can't do that. There, there's no guarantee. 
um, correctional versus control settings, correctional control settings versus real world settings are different. Um, so we wanna prepare them for the real world at all times. You wanna have a diverse staff with, of, of backgrounds, education, training, experience. You really, really need that. Um, if you don't have a diverse staff, that can be a, a pose a challenge and some limitations to the treatment. So, you know, administrative policies, budgets, those are all things that we face as program managers or unless you're in your own private practice and you have complete control over these types of things. But these are all challenges that we have to work with, though. So I'm not saying it's a perfect world or, you know, I don't want to be too idealistic and say that this isn't, you know, hard or there aren't some, you know, snags or monkey wrenches, if you will. They're there. Um, but you, you definitely want to focus on the, the dynamic a lot. Um, you want to focus on the happiness of things that we can change uh, versus the history. Give your members more credit, you know, than their diagnosis or history. You know, their mindset outweighs these predictors, okay? So give them a little bit more credit. Don't just write them all off because they checked a few boxes. <laughs> they, can, they, can, they can succeed. Um, I want to move into a little bit of responsivity. This is the how of the treatment process, okay? This is the, the second R in R&R. And there's two parts to this. Um, there's general, uh, there's general and specific responsivity. Okay, so general calls for just cognitive social learning, right? Influences on behavior, just different strategies, regardless of the type of offender. Okay, it's universal for the most part. Any 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 offender can benefit from this, whether they're male, female, sex offenders, um, sociopath or psychopath, as it used to be called. It 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 works basically. Um, Pro-social modeling and reinforcement and disapproval. These are all general things. You want to reinforce, you know, the good behavior and, and, and disapprove of the, the bad behaviors, right? Just pretty simple stuff here. So now when you get to the specific responsivity, this is the fine tuning of the treatment, okay? This is the fine tuning of the behavioral intervention. This is where we're taking, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to advance. This is where we're taking into account strengths, learning style, personality, motivation, Okay, the biosocial, their race, their gender experiences happen specifically on those items. You may have an experience specifically because you were a woman or a man. You may have an experience specifically because you were black or white or Latin or what have you. Okay, so these are these are the fine tunings of these things, the different characteristics of the individual. So when we're talking about effective social learning and how people are going to learn or how people really get these cognitive um skills, if you will, or strategies, they're operating on two principles, the relationship principle and structure. I said this before, your primary intervention is your program structure and your, your culture. I didn't make that up. There's research on this here. <laughs> Bonta and his friends talked about it before I did, but I definitely put it into practice and it worked, okay? The relationship principles clearly states you have to establish a warm, respectful, and collaborative working alliance with your member. This is the recovery part that we that we talked to. This is the recovery part of your program. Then at the onset of treatment, you set these rules, boundaries, expectations, requirements. All of that is at the gate. You establish rapport to build this collaborative relationship with, by motivating them, giving them hope, offering them solutions and support, reading their body cues. If they're sitting like this or they're looking away, pay attention to that. Don't just try to keep going through with the assessment or the session. Acknowledge that. Point that out. That's the key thing. They're giving you, they're telling you more than, than what you really think. 
And you want to you go in on that. You want to drill down a bit. You want to be empathetic. Put yourself in their shoes. You know, some of you may have had a lived experience with um, incarceration or criminal justice. Maybe go back to that place. Go back to what that felt like. Some of you may have issues with mental illness or have been through the, the mental health system. Go back to that place and some of the challenges that you may have, have faced there. Okay? Put yourself in their, in, their, in, your, in their shoes. Don't be punitive. Don't look at the history and be like, oh my God, I can't believe he did this to this wife. I can't believe she did that to her child. That's not, that. we're not here for that. They did their time. Let them win. The state of California said that they should be out here free. So we need to help them. We don't want to place any judgment on them. We want to see them for who they are. We don't want to personalize. Get yourself into therapy if that transfer, transference, countertransference, all that stuff, those things are actively going. Get yourself in therapy. Get yourself, get yourself some help for sure because you can't be available to somebody else if you're depleted. You can't pour from an empty cup. Nothing will come out. Promise. Nothing will come out. Empower your member. I tell my members all the time, you can fire me whenever you like. This is your treatment. Voluntary program. Whenever you get tired of me, you can leave. I hope you don't. I'm gonna try to get you to come back. But I'd rather that we talk about what makes you want to leave and we try to improve that and help that before you just walk away. Give them that power though. That means a lot. That means a lot. And again, like I said, meet the members where they are. Don't give them more that they can handle. Promote the honesty, be relatable. Do that. The structuring principle, this is this influences the direction of the change. From pro-social through appropriate modeling, reinforcement, problem solving. This is where your modeling behavior comes in. This is where your program structure comes in. This is where your people's attitudes come in, your teams, your planned interventions. Know the treatment plan before you go out there. Um, in intentional, make sure your services are intentional, okay? Um, training your staff with regular supervision, consistent communication and follow-up, daily meetings, provide a welcoming environment. A team approach, no I, make team decisions. Don't just make executive decisions for the member. Do it together, do it with the team member, do it with the supervisor, do it with the doctor, do it with their family. Make a team decision. You aren't just in charge of the treatment by yourself. So we're getting to the point where I would love to take a break, but before I do that, I just wanna check in really quickly. I'm looking at the chat, I don't see any questions, but I would like to address any if there are before we take a quick five minute. Are there any questions, team? All right, it is, I'll say 10 o'clock. Can we come back exactly at 10.05, team? We'll get started with the rest of R&R &R and recidivism. Thanks, guys. Real quick, I, I gave you a couple extra minutes, <laughs> but we do have a lot to get through, so I want to jump back into it. But just, you know, what I was saying previously, cognitive social learning is the best treatment method, guys. You definitely want to be sure that they are changing their thinking, changing their thought process, because that's what's going to ultimately change the behavior and, and tailor it to their specific uh, personality factors as well. So when we're talking about recidivism, just so you guys can kind of get a quick understanding or just some stats about it, um, if we're only tre tre treating people at the level of risk, we got about a 10% you know, a difference in recidivism. But when we're talking about the criminogenic needs, 19%, which is pretty good. People may be like, oh, it's not that bad, but it's 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 up there. It's 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 getting better. Um well I see there is a question. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that question. Okay. Um I'm sorry I didn't mean to skip that slide. So if you're treating just the non-criminogenic needs, you see that it gets down to about one percent. So we definitely need both in there. So I just wanted to kind of point this out and point the stats out of 
what recidivism looks like and how um, you provide the treatment, especially where, and if you look at residential, 17% in the community, 35, that's us. So that's not too bad. Like it's where we're doing really good using the R&R model. That's what that's saying. Um, so let me get to that question really quickly. There's a question regarding assisting members and being successful within the community, such as in school work, environment for connections. It may depend on members' charges, which may affect their opportunities. Very true. Um, inquiring services, financial aid, Pell grants. Are there other avenues to assist members in order to continue successful within these areas? Um, you're right. There may be some, uh, as far as financial aid goes, there, there very well may be some issues, particularly if there's some drug charges as to why they may not be able to get uh, federal aid. Um, I would say that, you know, loans are definitely out there, which isn't always, you know, the best method. Um, but you can also go to the DOR as well. They sometimes do have resources for financial um, things too. Um, there also are other grants and things out there as well, just kind of require some research. I don't know any off of the top of my head, but I do, I totally agree with you that um, it there, there are some challenges with um, some people getting financial aid, depending on the charges. Um, and definitely it is usually a, a drug charge if they have some difficulty with that. Um, but Department of Rehab, they definitely have some options for that. So is that it, that 17, to have a 17 and 35% difference may not seem like a lot. Why wouldn't we have more, 40 or 50 or even 100%, right? That sounds like what we would want. But first of all, there's no total cure. Um, you know, we, we want to just look at what we can do. And this is just what the studies have shown thus far, um, as far as the success rate goes. But I do really do feel like you, you know, depending on how you really operate, how you really structure your program, you're going to get really good results with your members not returning to jail uh, or, or prison for that matter. Address the yes. Just in, in um, summary, the essence of the principle to just treatment is enhanced. What intervention pays attention to personal factors, these things I've already talked about. So don't lose these, their cognitions, their behaviors. Keep all of these things in mind when you're developing treatment and providing um, services to your members. If they have limited verbal skills and concrete thinking style, then the program must ensure that abstract concepts are kept to a minimum and that there's more behavioral practicing than talking. Know the way your member thinks, know the way your member learns, okay? Uh, specifically for member offenders as well. Um, female offenders, I'm sorry, not member offenders. Uh, in an R&R recap, the risk principle, of course, matches the level of service the offenders uh, for the offender's risk. We match the criminogenic need and target that in their treatment. And the responsivity principle is providing the cognitive behavioral treatment and tailoring those interventions specifically to our member. So it's more than a level of risk, okay? Um, change is fundamental in human condition. We got to remember that change is possible. This is the recovery part. This is us really believing that they can make a difference. Assess those criminogenic needs and responsivity factors. Know what's going to work. Know what treatment is going to work for your member. They all differ. Bring interventions that bring change. Okay. Don't just start doing anything because I gave you a long list of stuff. Figure out which one works. Everyone's different. We're all different. Anger management may not work for me, but I might respond well to conflict resolution. That's, they're different. So assess the risk, the chronic needs and responsivity and all those factors largely affect the offender in your treatment, okay? So that's just a recap of R&R. We're gonna move into our final objective of actually planning the treatment. Um, treatment planning is at the program level, okay? Treatment premises are, is at the program level, meaning we have to have our own treatment plan. 
treatment planning starts with the program, not the member. If your program is not designed and structured to provide effective treatment, nobody can effectively plan treatment. I don't care what degree you have. I don't care how much experience you have. I don't care who you know. None of that matters. Treatment planning starts with us. Again, your program culture and design is your primary intervention. I say that from experience. I've had worse outcomes. And I explained that in my last session that I had to do some changing to get, my, to get those better outcomes. Uh, the tools and interventions that I discussed, none of them would have been effective. My culture and structure was not in place. I guarantee you that. None of this stuff matters if your program and structure are not in place. Utter chaos, no direction, no passion, no recovery if you guys are not set up for success. So the recipe for setting the foundation for a successful treatment planning, know your idea of recovery. What is your idea of, of hope? What does hope look like for you? What is, like, what is your idea of resiliency? These need to be the foundations of your core, of your program, of your culture. What does hope related to recovery? How does hope relate to recovery and resiliency? These are questions that you ask your team. These are questions that you ask your leadership. These are questions that you ask yourself because this is how you're gonna deliver your treatment. There's several definitions for recovery, but I like to think of them as synonyms, synonyms because recovery encompasses all of these things, okay? This must be your pillar, your mission, your foundation for your treatment, okay? So what are your members recovering from? Are they recovering from mental illness or the consequences of mental illness? There's a difference. I'll say that again. Are your members recovering from mental illness or the consequences of their mental illness? There's a very clear, sheer difference. We have to assure our member that all of the above is possible. They can leave fulfilling lives. They can, they can have their symptoms in remission. They can have healing and transformation. This is their recovery. These, they need to know that these things are possible. People with mental conditions recover. Their, their, their conditions are treatable. We're not just gonna cast them out, throw, the, throw them out like, no, they can, they can be helped, they can be served. When facilitating several, when facilitating recovery, several things you have to keep in mind. Recovery has a lot. There are meaningful activities, family, friends, peers, and loved ones. This right here, this is our treatment plan as providers. These are the things, these are our goals that we want for all of our members. This is our program's treatment plan. We want to have asset versus deficit thinking. We want our members to be able to manage their symptoms. We have to model asset and deficit thinking if we want them to think that way. And we have to manage our own behaviors and our own things if we want them to manage their symptoms. We have to empower and respect their choices. Allow them to redefine themselves. These are the things that as a, as a treatment provider that we want for all of our members. So you have to be able to set yourself up to, so they can achieve these goals because essentially these are your treatment goals as a program. Again, you the treatment starts with us. The treatment starts with us. Mental health services are not the only cure. It's not the cure. We're good, but we're not that good. We have to facilitate recovery. We can't be recovery. Does that make sense? They can't just rely on us. We have to provide the opportunities for them to do these things because this is recovery. They don't need to be, they need to be independent. They don't need to be dependent on us. Foster that, empower that. 
So when we're talking about asset versus deficit thinking, we want to talk about in strengths, okay? These, we, we want to change the way they think. A lot of them come with these depressive thoughts or these negative thoughts. We have to approach and facilitate conversations, sessions, our interviews, our assessments, all of that with, with asset or recovery-oriented frames of mind. Empowerment. We want to help them. We want to be positive. For example, if someone was re-experiencing symptoms, okay, we want to normalize them re-experiencing those symptoms. That happens. Okay, we want the way that we want, as far as their thinking goes, re-experiencing symptoms, we want to say this is a normal part of recovery. We want them to think of it as normal, an opportunity for them to develop, an opportunity for them to implement or apply new coping skills versus feeling like they're decompensating and their symptoms are just exacerbating or they're relapsing. Okay, we want them to really take their, their medications regularly as an intervention. We want to express empathy for them. We want to reinforce their personal power versus involuntary commitment, threatening them. I'm going to put you in the hospital. You're never going to make it. You're going to go back to work. We don't want to do that. We want to give them a better way of looking at it. Because if we're telling them that, all we're doing is telling them like the bad kid in school. The self-fulfilling prophecy still works, team. It still works. It's still live and well and kicking. And they don't need to hear that. There are a lot of therapies that you can do to reprocess, okay? Changing their thinking. Narrative therapy is key. Telling the story by any outlet, giving emotions, characters, storytelling, journal using allegories with animals. I don't know if any of you guys remember the book Animal Farm. I had to read that back in high school and they gave so much life to these animals. It was, a, you know, very satirical in nature, but, you know, it was an easy way to talk about a rough topic, if you will. Uh, for example, I think about this with the Charmin commercial and you have the bears that are talking about they didn't wipe themselves clean. Like we probably couldn't hear that if a person was telling you that they couldn't wipe their butt clean. But when we have the Charmin bears talking about it and dancing, we can stomach it a lot easier. That's the same thing for your members. Very similar to play therapy or doll therapy, if you will, when you're working with kids. It's a different way to tell the story, okay? Trauma-focused CBT, more than confronting the negative belief. You're exploring where it came from. You're digging a little bit deeper. I'm just not gonna talk about the belief. Let's go back to where that originated. Use that guest thought element, the empty chair, writing a letter, but don't send it. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapies. This may include some deep breathing. This is where all my yoga fans can come into play and doing some things with them and reprocessing the way that they think. Somatic experiencing, what's happening to your body right now? Get them in tune with their body, get them, get them aware so that these are good for if they're anxiety attacks, panic attacks, things of that sort, phobias, you know, changing the way that they're thinking. Recovery is a partnership, okay? This is, this is Dr. Pat Deegan, these aren't my words, professionals who learn to collaborate with the active, resilient, adaptive self of the client will find themselves collaborating in new and rewarding ways with people who have been viewed as hopeless by others. That's so true. You'll see a whole new person in front of you. This person was seen as hopeless. This is the person, these were the people that were told they were bad in school, okay? We don't want that anymore. 
because we want them to be resilient. And what is resiliency? Rebounding from that adversity, overcoming that trauma, dealing with those stresses, being skillful, being masterful, being in charge of you. This is power. This is power. This is power for your members to be able to, any one of these four things, even if they don't achieve all four, one is fine. One is fine. It's resiliency. They're going to make it. That's what they're selling. They're going to make it. So we got to pro promote that so that they do make it. Taking a strength-based approach promotes the well, promotes their well-being. Identifying their risks and protective factors, focus on those that are malleable. Get to know them, know what's going to harm them, know what they're at risk for, and work on the ones that we can change, that we can manipulate a little bit. And I don't mean manipulate as in being taking, you know, taking over the treatment, but I mean being manipulated as in there's a treatment, there's an intervention that we can, that we can come up with. There's something we can do with them to change some of these things, okay? It's not static. It's not something historic. It's something that can change and that can move in a different direction. Keep in mind that the most effective approach, approaches to enhancing resiliency are those that take an ecological approach to reduce risk and enhance protection at the individual, the family, and the community level. We all, we all included. Everything has to be considered. And the role of your team is key to treatment planning. If they don't have these basics, if they're not approaching treatment like this, if they're not able to do this on the ground, they're not going to be able to effectively plan treatment. Because this, this is what you need to do to be able to plan the treatment before you can even serve it, before you can provide the services. Okay? It starts with us. As providers, we got to be cognizant and perform in ways that demonstrate our knowledge and awareness of our members' potential to have a better life. We got to know that they can do it and we got to know how they're going to get there. So, like I said, one of the things that happened that I changed was my operation and from a tiered structure, I mean, to a tiered structure. Um, and basically, I had teams set up. You know, my teams may consist of, I don't know, five people each, depending on how big your program is or how large mine was fairly large. Um, so I, I was able to have three teams because I was able to serve. So I had to serve so many members. Um, but members go through stages in the program, just like they go through stages in life, they go through stages in treatment. And you want to set up your treatment like that. If you can, you may not have a choice in how to set up your treatment structure, but I can tell you that this works. I can tell you what works. I can tell you what I've had experience with. Okay. So if you can, and you can organize your, your, your treatment this way or your structure this way, that's great. So it's, um, it's, it's very similar to identifying the level and put, of their level of risk, okay? Remember we talked about that. You wanna identify what level of risk they are. This, is, this will help you with that. Where are they, okay? And then we wanna be sure that we're addressing those needs within each phase and how we provide the treatment. That's our last R, responsivity. So um, <clears throat> the contractor may provide case manager services um, within the phases that's kind of identified, okay? So like I said, your services are gonna differ in between. In the stabilization phase, this is where you wanna address those basic needs, okay? This is like Maslow's floor level, okay? You wanna stabilize them as much as you possibly can, food, getting identification, getting them medications, getting them, getting them some shelter, a roof over their head, okay? The participants stay in this phase for about 45 to 60 days. Some may be a little bit more advanced and have some of those things that I just mentioned already in place and be pretty stable, and they may not need to stay in this phase for very long, just enough to get their assessments completed, and that's fine, because this is where you're doing all your assessment work, okay? And um, at what also happens before they promote to the next level, 
or the next stage, you want to have an IDTT, an interdisciplinary treatment team meeting. You want to discuss their progress in this stage. What worked? What didn't work? Are they ready to move on or should they remain here longer because we have some other needs that we still need to stabilize? Okay. Um, then from there, they go into the transitional, transitional phase. Now, the transition phase, once they complete the stabilization phase, they can go on in here. Um, and they should have accomplished about, about four maybe goals or presenting needs in the previous phase so that they can go ahead and try to complete four more in this phase. They can go in any order. This is, you know, whatever goals they're meeting is completely up to the team, you know, mainly the member. Um, so it's at this point, this is where their community connections are coming in. The majority of, of for the majority of their presenting needs. We want to do some community linkage. We want to connect them to housing or whatever these other needs are, okay? Um, it's anticipated maybe six to nine months about in this phase. It could take longer depending on the member. Don't get so caught up in the numbers and the timeframes. If you need time or more time or less time, it is what it is. That's, that's not a problem. Um, the main thing are the activities that you're doing within the phase versus the length of time that they stay in the phase, okay? I'm going to focus on that. So again, after about six months, you have another IDTT meeting. You determine whether or not this member is doing great, what's going on, uh, how's the treatment planning going, and then we can decide if they want to phase up to the next phase, okay? So I would say a successful phase completion is determined by at least completing four, four goals here, uh, four more goals in addition. And, and I say that because... Um, you guys may say four goals. Some people are operating on maybe three goals. That was how my, my structure was at first, um, where we had three goals, maybe a couple objectives or so for each goal. Um, we were missing stuff. We were missing stuff with three goals. Um, our contract is what promote, prompted us to change how we did our goals and our structure. And I'm going to go through that as well. But what I will say is that I just kind of want to be, you know, I wanted to to touch on that, because I'm saying having four goals met, and some people might be like, well, wait a minute, how many goals do we really have? Yeah, you have a lot, um, or we had a lot, I'll say, and I actually preferred that over the standard three goals that we were used to. Anyways, I'll get into that. So moving into sustainability, um, this is the final phase. This is where programs, this is where your member are, your members are making sure they're set up for success and they are completely independent of the program. The goal is to obtain community service connections for the remaining of your presenting needs that probably haven't been met or remaining goals that haven't been met. Um, we also want to be sure we're having another IDTT meeting before we discharge them from the program or successfully completing the program, because at this time we're talking about discharge. That's what we're talking about, getting, getting them back on their feet. And we may be setting them down to a lower level of care. It doesn't mean that they don't get any other services after us. They just may not need as intensive services as we're providing. But we want to just assess that and determine that and be sure that they're connected. We want to be sure that they're sustaining the skills that we've imparted, that, we, that they've learned, and that they're going to be okay. Most times or oftentimes discharge is determined by whether or not they're on parole or probation or if it ends and then that's it because that's the end of the treatment. But you have to gear it. You have to gear your mind, which is true too, <laughs> which can be true too. But you really want to, you know, base your treatment and your discharge criteria on goal completion, you know, and skill, skill building, skill mastery. Um, if you have more, if you need more time, that's fine. Talk to that with your um, contractor or whoever your your funding source is. 
give them enough notice. And this should happen because if you're paying attention to your program and you're paying attention to uh, the progress of the treatment and you're paying attention to the IDTT meetings and things like that, you should know which way this member is going. Are they going up? Are they going up fast? Are they going up slow? Are they going back? What's going on? But communicate. Be sure that if this treatment is going to take longer than what is expected or what should, we're updating those goals. We're, we're really looking at objectives to be sure these are the appropriate ones if they're not meeting everything. So, but it can happen. It can definitely happen where you may very well need some more time. So as far as your operations go, data-driven services. That's one thing that I definitely took more advantage of was um, really keeping track of the data, really you know, making sure that I kept track of my safety risk assessments and using a log for productivity and um, making sure that I really kept track of my incarcerations because I want to keep track of what my recidivism rates are in my program. I want to keep track of where they are and wh why they're being reincarcerated. Is this a parole violation or they really did they get a new charge? So we can thoroughly talk about that in our management teams because this is how you combat the recidivism by knowing where it's starting. You got to know where you where you are with it and where your members are with it before you can try to combat it. If your recidivism is 50, 60, 70%, well, we got a problem. <laughs> so definitely making sure that your stats are good, create spreadsheets for yourself, um, check your spreadsheets regularly so that you know what's going on. I'm not going to go too deep with here. You guys know what assessments are, but this is these are the things that you want to do when your treatment planning starts, of course. You want to talk about SNAP, safety, co-occurring, all of this stuff, all of these assessments. And this should take you anywhere from 30 to 45 days, depending on the member engagement, availability, all of that kinds of stuff. So now here's when I was talking about goals and domains and how many goals that we had. So originally, like I said, we started off with those, you know, famous three goals. You have a medication goal, you have a case management goal, and you have a, a treatment goal or a rehab goal, right? So we're all used to that. And that's the way in which we operated until we had to change. So when we got this change, we're like, oh my God, we have all of these goals. So I'm just going to, we have these and these. <laughs> yeah. So we have those goals. So these were about 15, right? So we were devastated initially, like oh, we got 15 goals to write. But when I tell you that this actually saved everything, like it was, it was the best change that we could have really done in all honesty, because we hit every single thing. Now, these are things that you probably are hitting in your program or currently, I wouldn't say that they aren't, okay? However, when you can have a goal specifically honing in on this piece, it makes your note writing a lot easier too, because you're not trying to creatively fit in some services or fit in some things that you've done or interventions that may not actually align with this case management goal, this overarching goal or the objective that's even with it. I know that happens a lot to our case managers. They go out there with one agenda, one game plan, and they get there and it's a completely different type of ball game. The member wants to talk about something totally different. And it's not as related to the service goal or the treatment plan. So when they're broken down in these domains, it's like you can't miss it. Some domains may not be as applicable. I may not have to do co-occurring disorders with somebody that doesn't use or that hasn't used or that's been sober for so long or that's never used. That's fine. I'm not saying they all have to have a goal if it's not, you know, it's not applicable, it's not applicable. But it definitely provided a better blueprint for providing specific interventions specific linkages, specific services to a specific need or domain.
So in phase one of the crisis stabilization, again, this is your welcoming phase, you're signing your consents, your treatment plan is initiated. We initiated ours within the first 10 days of enrollment. It was an interim treatment plan. So this treatment plan pretty much consisted of uh, allowed your staff to write notes so that they can provide initial services. Um, they can talk about, they can document how they um, completed the consents, the assessments and, and things of that sort. So they don't really have goals just yet because we're still trying to get there, right? But at least if they have an interim plan, the treatment plan is pretty much talking about establishing rapport, assessing needs and things of that sort to develop the treatment plan, if you will. So no more than 10 days, I would say by, you know, we, we should, you know, really have some real goals, definitely um, uh, by the 30 day mark. So it shouldn't go 10 days without having anything. So within the first 10 days, they need to have something by 30 days, it needs to be full on completed. In phase two and phase three, your case managers are reviewing the members. Um, uh, they're reviewing their IR, what we call it an IRP, Individualized Rehabilitation Plan, Treatment Plan, Service Plan. They all mean the same thing, okay? It doesn't start at the development. It's a working document. I don't have to tell you guys that. They can change at any time. We update goals as needed. Life changes. We can't keep people committed to a treatment plan that's not adaptable and malleable too, Okay. So we have, to, we have to be able to understand that sometimes our goals may have to change. Sometimes that goal that we said may be too high, maybe it was too low. So we have to keep those things into consideration. So at stabilization, they have higher needs, right? When we're talking about services and planning our interventions, when we're going out and meeting with these members, this is stage one, this is their very first. Their needs are higher. They have some basic needs. I kind of talked about that, that they need to get met. At this point, we may be meeting with the member more frequently, like two times a week. Uh, we're talking, we're asking what's the impairment. We're asking what's the interfering behavior. We're asking what's the potential loss, okay? So this is where we are really planning our interventions in our morning meetings with our teams. These are things that we're talking about in the assessments with the members. These are the things that we're discussing and we're looking for. As they move on into transition, we know that their supportive services are coming on here. So we want to restore function um, and really focus on attaining the goals here. Okay, so we should have a treatment plan already set. Everything should be there. Okay, so our services can include here individual and group rehab, medication support, psychiatric follow-up is happening here. Um, it focuses on more on the objective in this phase as well, getting them to that those goals or, or, or accomplishing those goals. Um, <clears throat> we're coaching them along the way, uh, identifying stages of change for them, using a lot of motivational interviewing, DBT tools, CBT skill building. That's what's happening. This is what the magic is that's going on here. Um, teaching them how to make community connections necessary for housing, food, health, helping them with daily structures, understanding their symptoms and their medications. That's, those are the kind of services we're providing in this phase. This is getting a little deeper. This is where the real work is happening, team. That's why this phase is the longer phase of the six to nine months, because you're doing a lot of work. This is the intensive treatment, treatment part of it. And then we, once they're there, we want them to sustain this, right? We want them to keep these skills. We want them to, to near step down to a lower level of care. Not saying that they're cured. But we want them to have a lower level of care. We want them to be able to garner their skills. And, 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 and we're documenting them, making sure that they're aware of them making sure that they're acknowledging themselves, that they feel empowered, that they're making plans, they're initiating some things here. That's what sustainability is all about. It's about the independence. 
what has improved? What hasn't improved? We're asking them what they feel they have accomplished. We're asking them what they feel they still need to accomplish for that matter, okay? Group therapy, um, not all will benefit from group therapy. I'm gonna touch on it really quickly. Know your members and their engagement style is key, okay? Know who you can refer to group and who you can't. Don't put somebody in group that's gonna be a disrupt disruption. Um, if you're gonna put somebody in the group that's gonna monopolize the group, we gotta work on those skills. It's like we gotta work on the disruptive class clown type of skills, all of those things. Group therapy reminds me of the classroom all day long. So I would definitely say, you know, be, be mindful of that. My issue with group therapy is that I feel like it's more on the provider than the members. I feel like I've I've supervised some groups, I've sat in on some groups, and in just my experience, it's the group that's bad, not necessarily, and that's probably why members aren't benefiting. The facilitator is not prepared. Um, you got the wrong people in the group. It's not matched properly. Um, program rules aren't being discussed, boundaries aren't there. There's just a lot of different things that with the facilitation of the group that can lead to, you know, failure. So what I will say is be sure you're tight to set up groups. Don't just set up groups because it sounds nice, because it sounds like something that you should do. Be prepared for your group. Supervise the groups. If you're a, a supervisor or a manager, supervise the groups that are going on to be sure that they're coming. One thing that has also been pretty cool about, um, about groups is being creative about the group names to get them to it to get them to attend. Okay, uh, for example, um, you can have an MRT group or you can have an anger management group. We had one that was called Mama Said Knock You Out. That was just the name of the group. It was, and people would see that on the group calendar and be like, "What's that about?" Um, we had a money management um, group that was um, "Mine on My Money, Money on My Mind." That was the name of it. Um, it was another group that was about money management or income. I can't remember exactly. And it was called Show Me the Money, kind of the thing from McGuire, uh, Jerry McGuire movie. Um, another one was for boundaries or relationships. It was You Had Me at Hello. Um, be creative with that because people don't like groups, like I said, for the number one reason is because groups are just structured poorly, uh, facilitated poorly, and there's just no benefit. And they get outed in front of a lot of people if it's not, you know, being moderated properly too. So uh, a lot of women don't want to be in men's groups. So you probably really should separate by gender. I would strongly suggest that. Um, and, you know, give them the treatment that they really need. 12-step, co-ex, sex offender, whatever, whatever it is, but make sure they're assigned to an appropriate group. I'm going to get into it with 12 steps for a second. 12 steps are out there. They have helped a number of people. Lots of people love them. They're there. They're resourceful. Um, those are great group names. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> they helped. Trust me, that changed the game for people to come. Um, just be creative with your team with them. It, it actually does help. Um, but 12 steps. I have a love-hate relationship with 12-step groups, okay? So I just caution just a little bit. They don't always address trauma, which is key more often when it comes to co-occurring disorders. Trauma is there. It's a delicate dance for me. Um, you have this rigid application of 12-step principles without considering the trauma, which is dangerous in my opinion. Co-occurring disorders are a significant part of the clinical picture and a substantial number of survivors of child abuse. Um, so thus the treatment of abuse issues that doesn't address the co-occurring part, it's, it's, it's ineffective. You, you can't isolate one, you know what I mean? And the disease model does that often, you know, but just kind of just 
saying it's a disease and it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with other, other parts. And it's like, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like you, you want to keep some of this because that, that there's, there's more to it than that. It's not just a disease model. There's, there's some other stuff that's, that's going on there that has to be treated. Um, treating only a, the, the addiction is, is, is just, it's simply just not going to work. Uh, the spirituality emphasis is there too. Uh, if you're not a spiritual person, you're not, you don't have a relationship with God and things of that sort, this can turn people off and, um, they, they, they may not like that, but it's paced. You, it's a lot of times they're peer run or peer led. There's lots of options out there and, and, you know, you're with like-minded people. So there's less judgment felt there. So they can be helpful. I would just say just some tips, do local meetings, uh, gender specific, if you, if you can, um, advise the sponsor, um, with, with trauma insight, you know, um, you want them to get a sponsor and things of that sort, bring concerns to counseling. There are things that get tossed around in some of these 12 step meetings that you're, that may trigger your member or that your member may be like, I'm not going back. I didn't like the facilitator. I don't like what he said to me. Make sure you bring the, that your member bring those issues up back to your sessions inquire about them so we know how they're interacting there may be open meetings that your member may want you to attend with them that's okay that's treatment you process before and after okay um and then build body-based coping breath work yoga muscle relaxation you know some something something uh body-based kind of coping so that they're more aware of who they are okay um when they get to steps four and five, that's where a lot of people um, kind of start participation. Turning step, turning points for step four is like this moral inventory of yourself. And step five is admitting to God or others the nature of our wrongs. Heavy, heavy topics. Definitely discouraging for folks. Um, it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard work in those steps there. So if you have someone going through those steps, pay attention to what step they're on. Educate yourself on what's going on in each of those steps so you guys can process some things in therapy. Step in, step four and five, need therapy. Uh, process their pejorative slogans, insults, you know, her, you may hear them in there. Um, Hot seat strategies, don't do that. You don't, don't want to point people out there. Um, if they're going to do steps four and five, you want to really work with them and evaluate how they will proceed with step five and talking to others and talking to God about it and things of that sort, because that can get deep and that can be very, very triggering. So be with them, be with them. Some alternatives, smart recovery, uh, women for sobriety, life ring, secular moderations, management, secular organization, society. These are all other alternatives that, you know, some that don't have anything to do with um, spirituality or anything like that. Um, so they're very, very, very helpful. Um, some, um, some other ones are the modified therapeutic community, some peer-based recovery. On um, the modified therapeutic community approach, um, it is response to some of the psychiatric symptoms, cognitive impairments, and other impairments commonly found with co-occurring disorders. I, I do tend to like that because it seems a little, it seems to encompass a bit more. Um, so that's pretty helpful um, also sometimes. Peer-based recovery programs, CBT, um, things of that sort. So these are some other ones that can address some of those co-occurring disorders if 12 steps is not your thing or your member's thing. Just want to give you guys some options with that because it's not really mine, but I roll with what people, if you like it, I love it. And if it works for you, we're doing it. So, but if it doesn't, let's do, let's do this. Um, let's do this. So these are some other ones too. Um, behavioral couples therapy, typically if you um, have couples that are using together or, or if there's, if there's an eight enabler 
in the couple relationship. Maybe one isn't using, but I buy him the booze because it keeps him quiet. It makes him fun. It makes him easier to deal with. I don't want to argue whatever the situation may be. Um, so some best practices for interacting with your members. Don't re-traumatize. That's, that's hands down. <laughs> Just be genuine. Ask open-ended questions if you want to have a real conversation or some real dialogue in there. Don't shut down the session. You, you Don't shoot yourself in the foot by shutting down the session and asking closed-ended questions, okay? That, that's your fault, not the members. They're only doing, <laughs> they're only doing what you're asking at that point. You know, no judgment. I got to remind you guys about that again because it's easy because we're human. Okay. It's, it's sometimes we read some hard histories. Um, there's been some times that I've actually read histories from some members that I was like, you know what, I'm going to reschedule my assessment with this member because I'm not in the right space to see them. Be real with yourself. Be real with yourself. Um, it was hard. I, I did. It was a sex offender case. And this was back when I was doing work in in Florida, and I just, I, I, I couldn't, and um, I just, I just really couldn't. I needed a break. I needed to process. I needed to talk to my supervisor. We rescheduled it, and I was a much better person for that member on that rescheduled session. So know that about you if you need to do that. Get some closure strategies in place. Deep breathing, guided imagery, muscle relaxa relaxation. Be available after that group to process some things as well. Okay. Um, you just never know what triggers may have come up. If someone needs to be excused from the group, allow that, you know, stop the group if it's looking like too much or feeling too, too tough, too tense in there. It's not going to benefit anyone. Okay. And assure them that they can provide feedback on how they felt about anything shared or presented in the group. Maybe they don't like the way you did something in the group. Be open to that. Be open to that because that's good feedback that you need to take into the next time that you're in a group. Okay. I kind of want to give you some resources that are in Los Angeles County for you guys as far as, well, before I get into that, any questions on what I just discussed about tier structured or 12 steps, if you will? I want to move into just to give you guys some resources that I've used um, for maybe some co-occurring disorders here. Uh, Weingart, Kavanaugh House, some are better than others. I will say that I tried to include the ones that I've had really positive relationships and good experiences with. Weingart's hit or miss. Weingart is hit or miss, but they're there and they can definitely be a resource if you need them. I will say that. Um, Health Right 360 is pretty good. I like Hillsman Center as well. Chapman and Hoffman House for your ladies um, that we talked about those for housing. Um, they do they do they do good work. Fred Brown has done some good work as well too. Uh, primarily the men with the residential there. So there's some there's some good stuff out there. Uh, pilot programs do well too for those that have already applied for SSI but now have may not have received it yet. Um, this money is you know taken back from them once they do get awarded their SSI. But the pilot program is a housing program that will pay for housing for them, um, basically in good faith that they will uh, take it back once their SSI benefits are approved and awarded. So for educational vacational, um, employment centers work well. Chrysalis um, is a good one. Uh, they, uh, we've had really good experiences with them. I would, you can just Google all of these. Um, Second Call is another one. They actually have really good support groups and meetings. And they have actually gotten people really uh, gotten most majority men. There are some women there, too, uh, that do go to this particular meeting. They, it's, it's not gender specific. However, I just 
seen more men there. Um, and they do very good work with job placement. And when I say job placement, like they get really good jobs. I have members that are making six figures as longshoremen. I have members who have worked with them in construction who have, and they've helped them actually develop their own construction company, get their licenses. Um, they do really, really good work. ARC is another one with um, kind of construction and maintenance and things of that sort and really creating careers for our members, not just jobs. Um, Homeboy Industries is another one, uh, Harbor City Culinary School. They have a really good internship training program um, for members there too. So just putting yourself out there um, as far as that goes with, with getting money, you know, EDD, we know the Employment Development Office, they may be able to help um, if they can file for unemployment. Um, the Department of Developmental Services can also help, you know, applying for SSI. Um, SSDI, DOR, I've talked about them, AFDC, if you've got kids, um, GR, always get GR, that's an easy one, but it's not a lot of money, it's like what, $200 or $190, bucks, something around in there, SSI isn't a lot of money, like I think the max is like $900 or something, like it's just enough money so you don't die for the most part, it doesn't really do a lot in Los Angeles, like living in LA is expensive, I don't have to do a training on that. <laughs> um, for training and development, um, get some, get some, get some free stuff. If y'all can <laughs> get some free help in there, um, train, train the, train the upcoming people that are going to be in this industry and working with our members. Jumpstart MHA LA love jumpstart. I hire jumpstarters all the time. They train with me. And then I've, I've taken jumpstarters out of training. Like, okay, yeah, no, I want you to, you can start, let's start working. Um, it's awesome. Peer partnership network. These are for your people with lived experience. They, be, they can become a peer support specialist. I can't tell you how incredible they are to have to your team. Um, Cal State Dominguez has interns. USC has interns. Um, utilize them. They are very, very helpful as long as you provide the supervision. Um, any resources for parenting? Ah, can I get back? If um, I have my email here. I didn't include that here. Um, so if you email me, can I send you some stuff? I would love to do that. I, but you've just reminded me that I need to include that in my training. So that's a great one. I'll, I'll get that to you. I'll get that to you. Homeboy Industries has a good program that can offer solar power. I didn't know that. I didn't know about the solar power training. Thank you. Also go to Kinship Attitude for Felon. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Just email me. I got you. No problem. Um, but get you some free help, y'all. And I don't say that to try to be funny. I mean, it helps your program. It helps your budget. And you can get some quality people that are really trying to learn, learn the industry and get some experience in there, okay? For health and wellness, if you can get an FQHC on site, beautiful. LA Christian Health Center, that was who we had at our site. And they we gave them an office. They had their, They came in twice a week. They had a provider, a, a PA was in there. They did, I mean, we sent out their labs, whatever they needed, but it was very helpful to have that on site. Watts Healthcare is good. Uh, Pop-up clinics and mobile clinics. You can kind of Google those. You can kind of go on the LA County um, health websites um, also uh, and, and see where those are. The STAR treatment, I talked about that. That's with the parole department. Contact them to see if you can get something, um, get your, your member in there if they need some substance abuse treatment. Those meetings are held at the parole office. I'm not certain what they're doing with COVID right now. So uh, check, check in, check in with that, check in with that to see how that's working. But again, one thing I can say, I want to just re really reiterate that peer support specialists are awesome and they are a great ways to encourage your members to give back 
and to start careers in mental health themselves. I have a lot of folks that were in my program that I connected to the Peer Partnership Network. If you want that information, I'll send you the information. I'll send you Jason Garcia, Guyton. Those are the two uh, men over there that run that program and they do an amazing job at transferring some of our members to becoming healthcare and treatment providers. And they do great work, really, really good work. Um, so please let me know if you if you want that. So this is my email address. Um, I'll, if you guys need anything, if you have any questions that I may not have been able to answer, um, I do check my emails daily. I ask if you give me about 24 to 48 hours to return um, some of the emails. So please just give me a little bit of grace with returning the emails. But I will definitely get back to you if you have questions. Myra, I got you on the parenting class. And if there's any other ones, um, please, please, please go ahead. Um, so I'll leave that up for a minute. I see the Zoom support that says we're near the end. There's a link here in the chat um, so that you can complete the evaluation and download the certificate uh, for your CEU units. If you attended both of the trainings, the one on Wednesday, as well as today's training, guys. So uh, real quick, any other, it's 1053. I think I made it, y'all. Um, through those slides. So are there any other questions maybe that I can answer really quickly? Any comments, any feedback? I take good and positive feedback. Um, <laughs> anything that can help me be a better person, I'm, I'm open to it. If you don't want to share it here, there's my email is still up there. You got it. And I really do hope that everyone, this was beneficial. I hope it was helpful. Um, I, again, give me the feedback if I can change it, if I can implement something else, if there's more that I could cover that you would like. Uh, I please be mindful some trainings will be longer than others, but I can definitely always put some things together for you guys. That's not a problem. And that's my thank you.